reads at the beginning. I don't know. I but you never know. know. It's Monday, 28th. It is Monday. It is. This week blew by, but I'm so glad. But this uh, week has only just started. No, the other week. The, one of the weeks blew by. Where are we anyway? Welcome to the Backpack Show. I don't know. Have we got something going on today? What have we got going on today? Do you, well, we have two professors who teach one of Stanford, Stanford's most popular courses on interpersonal dynamics. So we're today's show is all about relationships. We're going to talk to David Bradford, PhD, and Carol Robin, PhD, and their former students write them like years after taking the class to say, oh my gosh, you saved my marriage and all kinds of things. So we're going to talk with them about their book, Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. Maybe you and I can get something out of this. <laughs> Weekend colleagues. Welcome to the Backpack Show with your hosts, Chris Brogan and Carrie Gargone. Boom shakalaka. How are you now, Chris? <laughs> That's a pretty good coach, Woodard. How not so bad. <laughs> yeah, that's good and you. Uh, hi, Janice and Joseph. Oh. Welcome back from heart surgery. Glad you can rehab with us. Get yourself back on your this feet again, Mister. Might be too exciting. You might have to yeah. take a break. You better watch out. Between watch David and Carol, craziness can ensue, and you know you yeah. got to hold on to yourself here. Um, Before we begin, of... we should mention that we are sponsored by Streamyard. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> If you want your own show, you can get a show from StreamYard. Seabrogan.me slash StreamYard. Those are mallards. That's a male mallard right there. But this show is m much easier if you have technology like StreamYard to run it with. Don't you think, yes. Carrie? I do. Bring your own Stanford professors. There you go. Hey, want to watch another show like our show but not? Watch Intercultural Spark with Deanna Shoss. I watched last uh, Thursday's episode at interculturalspark.com. Yeah, what was your favorite part? YouTube. Uh, my favorite part was when she <laughs> asked a, a question and then they got into singing. There was a whole lot of singing in the episode last week. Oh. So you thought you had me, but I actually watched the show. All oh. right. We have uh, three Does more. Does that mean you'll be singing today? To the, there comes a time <laughs> when you heed a certain call. <laughs> you actually do it. Must come together as one. How'd oh, that go? Boy. Great. I think that's probably Stanford. enough. So, so having Stanford professors is kind of fun because I've been sort of mainlining GS, uh, GSB uh, business courses online. I've been watching all these lectures with people like, you know, Reed Hoffman and those sorts of people. So this is some of the extra stuff we get when you can talk to David Bradford and Carol Robin and we can, we can sample their course as well. I feel like, you know, we're <laughs> getting, this is, this, this is a lot of money we're saving you by having you come and watch this conversation. Oh, so join in. Oh, glad world. you're here today. This is the whole team. All right, I'm bringing them both in. Ready? Pew, pew. Carol, Hello. David, welcome to the He's show. Gonna put, oh, I knew it. He was going to put you on the correct side. Okay. Based on <laughs> where you were when you started. So you've been teaching together a very, very long time. What makes your course one of the most popular at Stanford, do you think? Well, I think it's uh, popular because the students learn things that they can use with friends, with their family, with at work. But most of all, they get personally affirmed for who they are, not who they pretend to be. And it's a fascinating course because it's unlike any other course in terms of its structure. 
or its lack of structure. So uh, that's why students say this has been transformational, life-changing, getting more out of it than I ever thought I would. Now I'm intrigued. Do people like grade themselves? What kind of course is this? Oh yeah, there's a component. There's a component to their grade that is, how do you think you did with regard to some of the things that we taught you with regard to what makes you more interpersonally effective? And but also, are they like nailed it, and then you're like, well, oh, we have them, we have them grade each other, right? So it's not just what how you graded yourself. It's how did your classmates grade you? And it's how did your facilitator grade you? And then your ultimate grade is a is a combination of all of those. And there's a lot of learning to be had when how you grade yourself is very different from the way everyone else grades. So you think they show up because the subject matter is so different? Like you're learning about themselves really in a way? Oh, absolutely. They show up for a couple of reasons. By now, of course, the course has a lot of lore. It's been around for four decades, more than four decades since David basically developed it. I came along 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of myth around the class now. Like, oh, my God, if you go to the GSB, whatever you do, don't miss this class. Um, and back to your original question, it's because what the students learn from the alums is this is the class I use the most in my life 20 years later. It's worth the entire, it's worth the entire price of tuition. Carol, that's a pretty intense thing to have said. I mean, out of all the classes, there's so many things and there's these, all these people there that are thinking they're going to be the next Uber or whatever. I mean, the graduates of Stanford are legion and, and, and to have them say that your course is the one that's a little bit crazy. I have, a, I have a weird side question to this. Do your colleagues, like you must not be able to eat in like the break room or anything like that. You must, <laughs> you must have to hide your head. Well, I'm not sure our colleagues uh, would agree with it. Uh, of course, everyone thinks their course is the most important one. Uh, and we don't go around uh, bragging that. We only do that on shows like, uh, like this one. <laughs> well, we emailed all your colleagues and told them you're going to be bragging about your class. So they should all be rolling up here to troll you anytime. Uh, yes, <laughs> or to do us in one of the two. So, unless they're leaving Amazon reviews right now for your book. <laughs> the word connect is one of those words that goes into a bucket to me of things that everyone knows and says that they do. Yeah. What are you talking about connect? Of course I connect. I connect all the time. That's crazy. Um, how do you disavow them? Do you beat them at the front door? Like, is there a, is there a shock element to this? Like, what do you do to teach them that they're not doing it right? Well, well in, go ahead, Carol. Well, for starters, one of the things that we try to try to do both in our course and in the book is to help people understand that relationships exist on a continuum. At one end, there's actually contact and no connection or dysfunction. At the other end, there's what we might call something exceptional, but there's all that stuff in between. And so when we talk about connect, we're really talking about a continuum. Uh, and, you know, David, I'm curious what you were going to start with. Well, that uh, Chris asked the question, do we have a shock value? And, and we don't have a shock value, but the students experience a shock <laughs> because what they learn is they learn the impact of their behavior on each other. So they have a notion that they're really cool or they're, you know, really impressing others. And we build conditions where people can start to be honest with each other. And they say, you know, Joe, you know, 
I, I feel distant from you. There seems to be a lot of presented stuff there. Now that's pretty shocking because we usually don't get that sort of feedback. Now we all, they also get supportive feedback where a person says, uh, a person may say, uh, gee, I really don't feel I add much value. Another person says, that's not true. When you made that comment 20 minutes ago, I really felt heard. I felt affirmed and it made me want to connect with you. So we rarely walk around knowing how we impact other people. Maybe it's just as well. But this is a course where with some safety, they learn this is how you're seen. And this is how you impress me or don't impress me. And this is why I would want to follow you as a leader or wouldn't want to follow you. And that, that's pretty upending and pretty uh, affirming because in most cases, what they get is when you acted like you acted in finance class, I thought you were a real jerk. But boy, now that I really know you, I really like you. I really like you that is showing up, not you that's being presented. And Carrie, that goes back to your original question, which is, what is it about this that stays with them for so long? It's like, oh, I learned that the more I let you know me, the real me, the more likely you are to not, not just like me, but feel connected to me. Slim Jim Longfoot, a previous guest on the show, has a question. How does an introvert go back to this world? We finally found a good distant haven. But this new world will be interesting. Well, I'm actually quite introverted. Carol is, is a wonderful extrovert. Um, so introvert and extrovert isn't really the crucial dimension because I'm probably more quiet than Carol is. But when I'm with somebody else and feel connected with them, I let them know more about myself. I was at a dinner party last night and we got into a, a very personal discussion about how we were dealing with, because most of us were uh, quite advanced in age, how we were dealing with being old. And uh, you don't have to be extroverted to have some feelings about that and to share that. So, in fact, introverts like this because they don't have to have a lot of small talk or funny things to say. They just have to be themselves. And as introverts, we do have a self. I'll add that I've got a husband who's an introvert and a daughter who's an introvert. Oh. And, and what, the, uh, which as you might imagine, makes for very interesting dynamics in our household. Um, and what I, what I find is that what David just said about conversation that's kind of meaningless is what's depleting to them. Yep. Conversation that actually is rich and meaningful in, in the right doses. <laughs> I can have an unlimited amount of that and be happy. They're like but, micro doses if you have a teenager. <laughs> right? that, actually, that actually makes a big difference and keeps us feeling connected to each other. So I want to dive in right there, because to me, there's in a course setting, in, a, in an academic setting, you've got this whole opportunity where you can you can warm people up to all the processes it takes to get to those meaningful interactions. But if I show up, uh, let's imagine it's a business setting and I, and I show up to the table and there's two of us and eight of them. And I want to throw everything I just learned from you on that table and have real meaningful conversation. So I don't have to, like, I'm an introvert as well. I don't want to have to break the ice. I don't ever want to talk weather. 
in my life or the next life. So is there a way to jumpstart that process to kind of get the right framing or language or anything out there in a, in a not too, uh, so, uh, not too structury way. Is there a way to help them know this is the kind of, can you start that ball rolling, I guess? Yeah, I, th I think you can. One of the things we stress, uh, by the way, the course is called touchy feely by the students. <laughs> and, uh, it's not in the formal title, but it's a pretty accurate description. I mean, even leave the first day, like mm, this isn't what I thought. <laughs> no, well, most of them say this isn't what I thought, but they get really intrigued very, very quickly. So that second word is important, feely. We really stress emotions. And that's also who we are personally. So Chris, you were talking about how do I get in? The first thing I would do is be in touch with your feelings. And when you're in touch with your feelings, that's often a great cue as to how you can come in. So I'm in a business meeting and things are really going uh, sort of off the track and so on. I can say, hey, I'm really bothered about this. Uh, this this is very frustrating for me because I don't think we're dealing with the real issue. Well, that's got me into the conversation. And there's a rule for us extroverts, by the way, who tend to suck <laughs> the oxygen out of the air, um, to say, you know, wow, we've been we've been in the meeting now for ten minutes, and you know, David, I haven't heard from you. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering what's going on for you. And I'm actually feeling a little nervous about whether or not we're giving you enough opportunities to weigh in on what we're talking about. So, you know, we talk about being equipped with two different antenna. One is what's going on for me, what am I feeling? The other one is like, what might be going on for you? And to the extent that you tune those, you're more interpersonally effective. So that actually touches on things like inclusivity. Uh, in all the ways, you know, fear mm -hmm. of ageism, fear of racism, fear of all the isms that can come to a meeting. If someone at least is attuned to this, they can guide more people in by saying, I've noticed I haven't heard from you. That's a, that's a powerful option right there. It feels like yeah. that's one of a set of tools I would right. get if I took touchy feely or even if I read the book. Well, I'd also add, well, maybe now you'll read the book. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Chris, I want to add something to what you just said. Just saying, gee, I haven't heard from you might leave the other person feeling put on the spot or uh, feeling uncomfortable, you know, busted. So I have to include why I'm curious. I have to make sure you know my intent is to invite you in, not to oh, make so you smart. feel bad. So smart. So your point about not putting them on this on the spot because I mean there's a lot of people that the worst the, the worst of all deaths the spotlight ah you know they might as well be a vampire yeah <laughs> I know a lot of people especially well a lot of friends that I have now say how difficult it is as an adult to make new friends yeah. like you make your friends in college or grade school and you keep them forever and if you don't like tough that's yeah. then you just get married and make your own friends in the form of children. So if you want to make friends as an adult, what are some ways that you can deepen connections that you've made in your community or at work with people you feel like you have something in common with? Well, I'm going to go back to where what David just mentioned, which is the role of feelings. One of the things that happens as we get older is we get socialized into believing there is no place here for feelings. Happens at business, leave your feelings in the parking lot, 
It happens even as adults. We do it to our kids. Our kid falls down at the park and we say, you're fine, you're fine, because it makes us uncomfortable. So one of the reasons we connect so much more easily and deeply when we're kids is that we, ha we haven't yet learned to be nervous or not to talk about our feelings. So one thing to do is to actually talk about how you're feeling right here, right now in this situation. If I wanna connect with you a little bit more right now, I don't have to tell you my whole life story. I could tell you that I'm thrilled to be here. This is an exciting format. I'm a little nervous. I hope I'm doing justice to David's and my work because this is our legacy. You've just learned a lot about me, haven't you? In about 20 seconds. You know, I think I should dive right in with, tell me something you've never told anybody else before that you definitely wouldn't want on Twitter. <laughs> I, I think what Carol said is very, very important. <laughs> and, and I want to build on it because I think that's uh, important and that's half the story. Often when we're meeting somebody new, we're terribly concerned about ourselves, and we don't see the other person. And I find that I find other people are sort of interesting. <laughs> and if I try, want to understand you, so Chris, you said you were an introvert. Uh, if we were uh, having a beer together, uh, I think I'd want to find out, well, how does that play out for you? Uh, what are situations that are difficult for you? Here are situations that are difficult for me. I find most people are, want to talk about themselves if you're really interested in them. And too many people use this as a device and you know they really don't give a damn about you and they're just waiting for you to stop talking so they can talk. So I think it goes both ways. Uh, can I share important things about me? Uh, so I could do a parallel to Carol, but we don't wanna use up that time. But can I really wanna find out about you? And the interesting thing is, I find I can connect with people that moves it from a transitory interaction to something that's a little more fun. So let me do a, a, a sim simple sort of situation. I do the food shopping. I always try to find a way to connect with the clerk who's checking me out. They look tired. So I say, you're looking a little tired. Is this near the end of your uh, uh, shift? What's it like working here at Trader Joe's? Uh, or I say, gee, I really like those earrings. Uh, where'd you get them? Because I may want something like that for my wife. I'm not going to see that person again. But in that moment, I as a human being have connected with another human being. And that's just a very simple thing, superficial. But if we want to be known and want to know the other, I think connections occur relatively easily. I'm with you on that. When we come back in 45 or so seconds, I have a whole bunch of follow-up. <laughs> don't go anywhere. <laughs> don't really go anywhere. It's literally like 45 really seconds. Don't. Hey, there. do you like podcasts? Who doesn't really? Well, you can get ours anywhere you can get a podcast, and it's hosted by the nice people at Castos. Castos.com. They put the peas in our podcast. And you can host your podcast there, too. That's right. Hey, did you want to buy a domain? Hey. <laughs> hey. 
You can get the dot online domain for a whole buck. Cbrogan.me slash online. Just remember to use the code Chris in all caps. You can get a dot online domain for a whole dollar. I just had a meeting with those people the other day who, who did you, the you like can you make the code so that it's not case sensitive? <laughs> no, I did not. I forgot to. Uh, but what they said was, hey, wow, lots of people are buying those domains. And I, said, <laughs> I said, Does anyone own hey dot online yet? Because I don't think that I want it. The only hey. one I looked up was like your mom is online and it was already gone. So we already bought your mom is online. <laughs> yeah, did. Hey, you know, Google's not for everybody. What if you had your own search engine? Presearch.com is a pretty cool one. And they do some really interesting things that Google doesn't. For instance, you can't necessarily buy an ad from them. But if you buy some of their pre-search coins, you can stake a keyword. So if you wanted best course at Stanford, and just anytime someone types best course at Stanford, it would you go right up. to David and Carol's course. <laughs> that probably happens anyway. I mean, hey. So, but you know, yeah, you don't have to buy their crypto. Anyway. You can earn crypto rewards just for using the search engine. You, you just have to be logged in, which don't Chris forgot to do. <laughs> Only three weeks. <laughs> you think you used it for like a month and didn't earn nothing. I know. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, by the way, it, uh, God bless Kate. She keeps buying every single week, one week at a time. <laughs> She's very lovely. So, hey, all right, let's grab back David and Carol. Okay. Oop, wait. He's going to be on the correct side. He's oh, got this thing. Broke it. Okay, there we I'm go. Not touching it. Not touching it. Welcome back. Okay, nope. so Touchy Feely couldn't be a better name for this course. Um, have you ever had to do like uh, academic debates? Have you ever gone up against, you know, Grumpy Fighty and see if their course is better somehow? <laughs> You know, probably like logic, right? Be like the logic course or something would be like, your course isn't good. People should take logic. They need it more. You know, <laughs> honestly, I don't think it is that for me, but we definitely had students. I, I, I had students. I suspect David had very similar experiences that would take this course from me or us and say, okay, so we're learning all about how people do business with people. We have to learn how to connect with people better in order to be better leaders. How do I reconcile that with this other course that I'm learning from this other professor who essentially talks about the only way to gain power is to be Machiavellian? I, I'm, I'm grossly exaggerating, but I'm making the point, right? And so students would say, what do we do with that? And so, my co this colleague of mine is a very dear friend. We, you know, we, we have a wonderful relationship. We happen to disagree on what it takes to be a really great leader. And so then we would have, it's it, that this is the beauty of academia. We would have what we call brown bag lunches and all the students would be invited to come. And they would listen to us debate with each other on what the merits were of our respective approaches. And the reason I think that that's the beauty of, uh, of, of, of a really rigorous academic environment is we're not there to provide you with the answers. We are there to provide you with thought-provoking experiences and questions. Let you find your own answers in your own interaction. Go ahead and see who, you know, how do you show up and how do people react to you based on the way you show up? But teaching for so long at this point, you're like fielding competing armies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people with very wildly different approaches and you're like throwing them into business together. <laughs> just gonna well, see what I, happens. I'll, I'll add one more thing, which is I always thought that what we taught was 
aspirational in addition to practical. You know, the, 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 uh, the motto of the Graduate School of Business is change lives, change organizations, change the world. So if what you want to do is go out there and do that, you might have to actually do things that aren't typically done. And sometimes what's been typically done, you know, has uh, worked in the past, but might not work in the future. I almost want to track a few of these because I want to know, did Uber ignore you and did Lyft not ignore you? Because Lyft is such a better company. Do you know what I mean? Are there touchy-feelies over at Lyft? Can I get a list of the touchy-feelies so I can give them more of my money? <laughs> All That's I can tell you is that the CEO of Lyft was one of my leaders in tech uh, you know, participants. That's all I'll say. Yes. <laughs> I'd like to go back and build on what Carol said. You see, if the student says, what is right, uh, what do we teach them? It's called experiential learning. In fact, we say to the students, you don't have to listen to us. We don't necessarily have the answer, but we're going to give you a, a way to interact with the world where you can figure out the answer. And, and that's very exciting. So they say, well, should I do X or should I do Y? How vulnerable should I be? And we say, you can try something and you can get some feedback and find out if it works. So don't take our word for it, because what we're giving you is something that's much more powerful, because you can use this in any situation. And what's so powerful about that is no one answer works for all relationships. So it might be that how you're going to work with uh, your brother is very different than with uh, a coworker. But now you can find out what works. You don't have a set pattern of how you do it. That's really exciting because now you can build the relationships that are really personal, that are really intimate, that really connect with the other person. So what does a successful relationship look like then? Whatever kind of relationship we're talking about, they must have common elements. Like, What do you consider successful? Well, that goes back to the, you know, the, the book is called Building Exceptional Relationships. And we identified in in looking at what were, what was it that the students learned and what was it that we'd experienced, the fact is uh, we don't use the word successful, I'll come back to that in a moment, but exceptional relationships, there are six hallmarks to exceptional relationships. And they, and they include a lot of the stuff we've already talked about. You can both really be much more fully yourselves with each other. You are both honest with each other. You deal with conflict productively. You, uh, you know, you're committed to each other's learning and growth. So um, if you look at that amalgamation of hallmarks, and then when you go back to what I said earlier about this continuum, you know, at one end of the continuum, you don't have any of those. Uh, and, uh, and as you move, as you use those uh, tools and competencies, uh, and develop more of that, you move towards a more and more robust relationship, and then eventually to something that's exceptional. Define and robust. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in each of the chapters, we give uh, suggestions, and what Carol is saying is that you can deepen the relationship to make it a little better, a little closer, more of a friend, maybe a little more intimate, 
by deciding which of these really fit. So maybe I haven't shared things about myself that are relevant to this relationship. Well, that's a place I could go. Or maybe there's something about you that I really don't know and would like to know. Or maybe I'm worried that if I share something, you're going to judge me. Well, maybe I could share that because that's telling. That's a, a, an emotion, a feeling I have. And maybe we've had sort of a little disagreement that I've ignored. Maybe we should raise that. So each of these six can give you a clue as to what it would take to further deepen it, not to make all of them exceptional. You only may want four or five or exceptional, but make them more robust, stronger, and maybe successful. There's a thought I had from the early, early experience, which is that you were talking about a lot of times people are worried about themselves and worried about leading with themselves or talking a lot about themselves. I think another way that that manifests is that we're so worried about ourselves. Our self-esteem yeah. can be off oh, yeah. dramatically. And, you know, we bring that to it because we're like, they're not going to think I'm smart or they're not going to think I'm worth it. Or I better not say anything, you know, better to be you know, quiet and thought a fool than to speak out and be, you know, <laughs> proven. Uh, how do you help people or is, is there anything in the process of this course that helps people uh, disarm that like self-loathing and that so, you know, self-challenging language? Well, there's two things there. One is what David said earlier about if I, if I give you a little peek window into the parts of me that I don't think you're going to like, and the response that I get is that you like me more, there is no better way to start to shift my own view of myself than in getting more data from others. That's why we say it takes two to know one. The other thing I'm gonna say is that there's a big cost to not disclosing because you might think, well, if I don't tell you anything, then you know you can't think anything bad about me. That's not really true. People make up stories about other people all the time. And the less data you give me, the more stories I'm gonna make up. And they're probably not gonna be good stories. So, <laughs> you're actually probably better off filling in the blanks for me a little bit and not letting me just go wild with why you have said anything. There's, there's, another, there's another aspect, and, and it comes back to what we were talking about five minutes ago when you asked about our colleagues at Stanford. I think part of the reason we get upended is we think we need everybody's approval. And if we need everybody's approval, it means everybody has control over us because they can implicitly or explicitly say, well, Chris, I'd like you better if you did this, or I'd like you better if you did that. And so when you were, what was coming to me when you're asking about our colleagues, uh, I think many of our colleagues uh, may not respect the course, may not think it's solid enough. I really don't care. Uh, th that's their opinion. I disagree. Now this doesn't mean that I'm totally oblivious to others. There are, I care very much what Carol thinks of me. I care very much what my wife thinks of me. I care very much about what maybe 12, 15 other people care about me. But I don't spend time worrying about what the world thinks of me because I think that's a waste of time. And here's where the course is so powerful. Because people get validated for who they are, as Carol said before, their self-acceptance goes up and they don't need everybody's approval. And there's a wonderful freedom in knowing yourself 
And knowing that warts and all, I still am a valued human being, that I don't need everybody's approval. Very unless, very unless, unless you're super neurotic and raise the eyebrows, <laughs> and then you need everybody's approval. I know, so with you. require a whole different show. <laughs> I remember years ago when I started going to conferences and stuff, I had one guy on Twitter say, oh, you travel too much. And I was like, suck it. <laughs> I don't care what you think. Well, you know what? That reminds me of Carrie. We talk about this in the book too, which is feedback says, as much, if not more, about the giver as it does about the receiver. <laughs> so, you know, when somebody says something like that to me, I get pretty curious about that, what that's about for them. It's nearly always just jealousy or something. Like they would like to go to these things and they feel constrained in some way. Or you remind them of their mother who was never there for them or who knows. And, and what's important, what you just said, Kara, which is wonderful is when they do that, we start to make up stories, uh, which, you know, it could be that you're right, but we're making it up. And what this course gives you is a way of asking. And it's back to what Carol said. Can we get curious? Gee, that's interesting that you think I travel too much. Can you say more about that? Because that seems important to you. Now, do I really want to know, or is that an accusation? <laughs> I totally <laughs> And it's by a great the way, tool either way. Yeah. Well, it is because there's accusations that it's going to close down. But if they know, if they think, if they believe that I really want to know them, maybe I'm starting to make a connection. And I've, I'm learning about them. And I'm saying, gee, I'm, I'm a little different. But that's okay. And by the way, curiosity is impossible if you have in, in the face of judgment. If I've already made a judgment about you, if I've already decided you're a jerk for even saying that, I'm not <laughs> going to be very curious. That explains it. We actually have to suspend judgment. You can always go back to being judgmental, but you okay. actually suspend, suspend it just temporarily when you're in the curiosity mode. And then you can uh, then you can go back to judging. And they may be a jerk, and you don't want anything to do with them. But oh, so true. That's your choice. Sorry, I, was, I put Leslie's comment up and it hid you like Mike Wazowski style. But she agrees with you. That's the short version. <laughs> Thank you for that. It feels Janice has a question. I feel Janice has a question. Do you okay. think that the virtual workspace that yeah. we've had with the work, virtual workspace, have we had to communicate a lot more? Oh, yes. <laughs> and what I will add to that is that we've paid a big cost for not knowing how to do a lot of what we're talking about. We were paying a cost before, by the way, but it's even it's become even worse. For starters, in, in the virtual workplace, tasks got very foregrounded and relationships got very backgrounded. But in business, people do business with people. So, um, so it was much easier to get sort of stuck in, in, in conflict around, should we do this or that? Everybody forgot that there were human beings behind ideas and behind proposals and behind work that did or didn't get done. Um, and, uh, and I think people also used it as an excuse. They hid behind, well, I really can't give you any feedback because, you know, we're not in person and I really should wait till we're together again. And in the meantime, you know, you did something that annoyed me and I didn't say anything. So did you stop doing it? Probably not. You probably not only kept doing it, but 
as you did it more and more, it annoyed me more and more. So who won? David might have more to add to that. Well, I, I think it's important, but Carol, what I want you to add is work you've been doing with executives where they've found a way to compensate for that. And I think that's yeah. really exciting because it, it isn't that complicated. No, it's not. Uh, and, and so thanks for the invite. One of the, uh, so in our leaders in tech uh, learning programs, one of the ways that we start is we have every person has 90 seconds to say, if you really knew me right now, you would know. And you have to fill in, in 90 seconds, what you would say. And by the way, they all have their vocabulary of feelings, which was in the course syllabus and in the appendix of the book. You have to use three feeling words. And some of my CEO's participants have now brought that to their executive team meetings where they meet every two weeks. When they were doing it on Zoom especially, many of them still are, they said, okay, we're gonna start our meetings with this. I'm gonna time it, the CEO would always start for 90 seconds. He would say, if you really knew me, or she would say, if you really knew me right now, you would know that. Uh, you know, I'm really worried about this upcoming board meeting. You would know that I'm really excited about this new product, but disappointed in how long it's taking us to get it out. Uh, you would really know that I'm super grateful to Joe who actually bailed me out. 90 seconds. And then the rest of the group had 30 seconds to say, when I heard you say, when I heard you acknowledge what Joe did for you, you know, that really made me feel so trusting of you. And I, I really appreciated it. It takes 15 minutes. And let me tell you, those teams are closer than they have ever been. It's a biggie. Um, I have a question that relates in a, in a hmm, tangential way. There are company cultures, I've been involved in two now, where in which they have a very strict uh, don't be mean uh, policy. Now, we can accept that don't be mean is generally okay, but what they've, what they've translated this to is a very don't deliver any negative commentary whatsoever, nothing uh -huh. constructive, etc. It is tough to operate in that environment. What's your feedback through the way you teach a course for those people? What we say is uh, we... Uh, take the Hallmark card and change it. We say, I care enough to say the very worst. And I think that when it is done with care, if I am doing something that's dysfunctional, as Carol said before, and you don't tell me, that's not kindness. That's not kindness at all. Now, I'm, you don't have to bludgeon me over the head, hopefully, and hopefully I can hear. So what we say is we say, uh, you have knowledge about other people, about how they're effective, how they shoot themselves in the foot, what they do that's annoying, what they do that's intriguing. And can you find a way to share that? That's what we mean by honesty. And so I always worry when I hear somebody say, well, I'm going to be brutally honest. They're usually more brutal than they are honest. And why they're brutal is they're making attacking statements about the other person's character. You're just selfish. You only care about yourself. That's pretty brutal. But if I say, you've cut me off three times and I feel uh, dismissed and unimportant, um, that in a sense is a gift. So at Stanford, we say feedback is a gift, whether it is about something you do well, 
something that you do that I find annoying and dysfunctional, it's always a gift. Sometimes wrapped in an ugly wrapping. Sometimes <laughs> it's hard to see that there's a gift in there. But, you know, that's the other, the other, the corollary to what David just said is when somebody gives you a piece of feedback, even if it's really ugly wrapping and you don't even know that you can't even tell there was a gift in there. When somebody gives you a gift, what do you say normally? Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So no matter what somebody has said to me and no matter how poorly they've delivered a piece of feedback, I have made it a practice. And boy, I'm really glad I have a mindfulness practice because it takes a lot of practice and a lot of awareness sometimes to hear somebody say something that feels dismissive, insulting, accusatory, and think, hmm, there's something in here for me. And I always start with, thanks, boy, I hear I'm doing something that's not working for you. Can you tell me more about Can what that tell is? Tell me more. I've learned this one from this so well. I can't wait to ask that question many times. We have to move to the last few parts of our show. So I apologize. I know we have hours more things we want to talk to you about. It's always the way with smart, smart wizards like the two of you. But I have to do this. Oh, okay. and here's our person of the day. Kaboom! I'm sorely tempted to give it to a lot of different people. You never know who it's going to be. Today it's Joe Jaffe, though, because he's standing up from heart surgery. I know. He like, literally gets extra points because he's showing up from his hospital bed. Mm -hmm. So he's on he's on the mend, one might say. That um, you still have to buy your own apple, though. So wheel yourself right, down to the cafeteria. No, just kidding. Good job, Joe. All right, listen, we have one last one, which is what goes in your backpack? This is a question we've asked everyone who's ever been on here. So it could be Sister Ann Flanagan from the Daughters of St. Paul. It could be Sir Mix-a-Lot, the guy who wrote Baby Got Back. The question is, what goes in your backpack? It could be something physical. It could be something metaphorical. Carrie, what's a good physical thing someone could throw in? Extra set of teeth. I think that's a great one. An extra I set of teeth could go far. I have a prop. <laughs> Carol's got a prop. It's a starfish. It's a dried out starfish. Do you want to do you want to know that's what why that's something I put in backpack? Yes. So there's the story of the starfish thrower, a burned out executive goes away for a weekend is walking down the beach, sees a person that appears to be dancing in the distance, walks closer and she says and she notices it's an old man and what he's doing is he's leaning down, picking up starfish and throwing them in the water. So rhythmically, it looked like he'd been dancing. So she says, excuse me, what are you doing? He says, what does it look like I'm doing? Tide came up, deposited all these starfish on the beach. Sun is coming up, tide went out. They're all gonna fry. I'm throwing them back in the water. She says, what are you, nuts? What difference could you possibly make? There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. And he leans down and he picks one up and he throws it in the water and he says, made a difference to that one, didn't I? <laughs> and then she joins him. So the starfish it is. Carol's added a starfish. David, what do you got, an octopus or something? What are, what are we <laughs> Uh-oh, that's going to get me in trouble. I, I think what I have in my backpack is my wife. That I know that when I'm in trouble, that when I'm lost psychologically or personally, that's a person I could reach to and will help me. That's that's in my backpack, and I'm very indebted to her. 
It's a beautiful answer. I feel like I've learned more already. Uh, I was thinking about what my grandmother would throw in the backpack, given those two options. And I'm not so co completely convinced she didn't throw starfish back up into the sand. She's that kind of person. I mean, there was one time when... Uh, Don't believe you. Mm, probably not. 